What is cultic spirituality? What are the benefits? How can we work it into our daily lives? What possibility does it provide for relief from symptoms of anxiety and depression? Well, let's talk to our guest, Dara Malloy, and find out. Hello, friends. Mike Guineri here. Welcome to A Skeptic's Journey. Today, we have a very special guest, Dara Malloy. Dara describes himself as a Celtic priest, monk, and druid. Um, he's an author. He has lots of books. Um, most recent one, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the uh, Reimagining the Divine, a Celtic Spirituality Experience. I'm currently reading that right now, and I can recommend it. I love it. Um, it's as if Dara was in my head. Um, and he has another book, The Globalization of God, Celtic Christianity's um, Nemesis. Um, he has a YouTube channel, um, lots of other resources on his website. Um, he's a celebrant. Um, and I'll let him get into that when he introduces himself. Um, I will link his website, his YouTube channel, and any other things of interest regarding Dara um, in the comments below. Um, so I'd like to welcome Dara. How you doing? I'm very well, Mike. Uh, good to talk to you. I'm going to ask you to That'll test your Irish. <laughs> yeah, it went by too fast. I'm just a baby. So to get started, um, you know, I gave a brief introduction, um, but can you tell us about yourself and uh, your journey and, you know, what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure, I will, Mike. Um, I think I started in my becoming aware of myself, you know, when I was a young teenager. Um, I began to make decisions about my life. And I think it's at that early stage, I took a decision which I've learned in philosophy is called a fundamental option. So I made a fundamental option that some type of God existed and that I should spend my life in some way in service of that. So that was a very early version, I think, of what's been the orientation of my life, which is to to be to focus on the spiritual rather than the material, put it that way. And it led me into the Catholic priesthood because I was born a Roman Catholic and Ireland was very, very Roman Catholic at that time. Like I'm talking about nearly 100 percent and everybody went to mass on a Sunday sort right. of thing. So um, I grew up in a very religious household. So that was the only thing I knew. I went into the priesthood. I became a member of a religious order of priests. So we lived in community together. And it took me 10 years to get ordained because they put you through a lot of studies. And then for six years, I taught in a secondary boys school. Hated every minute of it. <laughs> I felt so imprisoned in uh, an institution. I, they could, I would have been happier in an actual prison. But anyway, it, it was awful. Um, so I eventually found a way that I wanted to live by a chance visit to the Iron Islands, which which is where I now live. And when I came here in 1982 on a visit, 
I wasn't looking for anything. I was actually bringing a group of kids on a camping holiday. It was nothing to do with my spirituality <laughs> in a way. Um, but when I got here, I said, oh, my goodness, the monks used to live here. There's monasteries, the remains of the ruins of, you know, sixth century monasteries all over the island. There's holy wells, the standing stones. There's quite a number of early monastic saints buried here that are used as places of pilgrimage. The whole place, in a way, lit up for me as, wow, wouldn't this be a wonderful place to live? And wouldn't it be great to plug myself into this monastic tradition and try to live somehow out of that inspiration? So that was the moment, if you like. I was 30, 33 at that time, 1982. And I came out here to live in 1985, in January of that year. And when I arrived here, I was still a Catholic priest. I arrived on a cargo vessel. And the first person to meet me off the ferry when I arrived here was the parish priest. I had arranged it with him. And he brought me up to my house and got me set up and came back every day to check out of me. And it's quite a coincidence that he died yesterday morning. Oh, wow. That's yeah. Terrible. So it's, I've had this long friendship with him since January 1985. And we knew he was dying. He died in his home. He, too, had his own journey in the sense that he was a parish priest here for a number of years. But then he and a woman on the island fell in love and they went off and got married and they had a child in New York. And they decided then that they'd come back to live here. So which is quite a thing, because him leaving the priesthood as a parish priest caused a bit of a sensation at the time. And it was a huge so-called scandal. I wouldn't call it a scandal. I would call it quite natural. But um, it was a huge hoo-ha at the time, as we call it. And um, But still, he decided once they had a child, they'd come back here and live among the same people, which he did. And he's been living here ever since. And we've been really close friends. So I'm very My sad today. Thank you. His name was Porik Oturish, by the way, just to record it. Okay. So that's really, I suppose, from then on then, I came to live here. The idea was to be a Celtic monk and a hermit. So I got a little small cottage and I rented it. But I learned, began to learn what it, being a Celtic hermit meant. And it turns out Celtic hermit is not the same as maybe, maybe what you might think, because a Celtic hermit has to be open to the world, has to be ready to engage with the world. And the image for it is three walls on your hut, not four. So the fourth wall is open to the world. And where you don't go out to the world, that's your job as a hermit. You stay where you are. The world can come to you. And that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> Even though I was living on my own out in the Iron Islands and I thought I was in a very remote place, which I was. Like these islands are 10 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean, well right. away from the shore. They're 30 miles from the nearest city, Galway. You know, it's a long, long journey. But still, people started coming. And I had to try and accommodate them in my little cottage. And eventually... I put a little wooden hut out outside the cottage in the garden, and that became my hermitage. And the house itself, which itself was very small, um, became an open house, a sort of a house of hospitality. And that became my work for 10 years. Mm -hmm. People coming and going for 10 years. It was We had prayer. We had a structure to the day. We worked in the fields, growing, growing our own food. Uh, we ended up starting producing a magazine and so on. It just went from there. Wow. And I did, I did that for... Yeah, I did that for 10 years till 1995. Then um, then things changed again. And um, 
I suppose that that became the real crisis point in my life, 1995, 1996, where I ended up in early 1996 announcing that I was going to leave the Catholic Church altogether. Now, I'd had a sort of a stormy relationship with the church all my life. I never approved of the patriarchy of the church, never approved of the top-down authoritarian type structure. And I sort of, I, I, was, I was against the church in lots of its teachings around homosexuality, around abortion, around lots of things. And um, so I think just one day, the last, the last cord of connection with them snapped. And I said, OK, that's it. I'm over. And I announced I was leaving the church and I was just going to simply live within the Celtic spiritual tradition from now on and separate myself from the Roman tradition. So that's what happened in 1996. I got married. We've had four kids together. They're now in their 20s and um, very happy. That's are, for they, sure. are they still with you on the Iron Islands? Uh, well, they're coming and going. You know, when young people are in their early 20s, they're not quite left the nest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they keep coming and going. So we, we see them regularly, but they're not based here. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow, so that's me. Yeah. So, you know, more and more I became focused in the Celtic tradition and could worked. You see, initially I had this idea that Celtic spirituality can be absorbed into Roman Catholicism. And that's where I was coming from. Uh, I tried to integrate the two. Um, but it would have been a very castrated version of Celtic spirituality, you know, if I kept in that in that way, because uh, Celtic spirituality is very connected to the earth. You know, the ceremonies should really be outdoors, if at all possible, not in the church. Um, it's also it has no issues around sexuality, which which all of monotheism has issues with, right. especially Roman Catholicism. Um, so much healthier approach to sexuality in all its forms, gender issues, all those type of things. And just lots, lots of other elements of Celtic Christianity, which, um, which meant it, it can't really ex exist in a healthy way within an institutional structure of some other religion. Right. I mean, that was always my thing. I never understood the term Celtic Christianity. It, it seems like an oxymoron to me. And what aspects there are, I think, of Celtic Christianity, a lot of it was just Celtic ideas or practices that the church adopted um, before they before they ran they ran the Celts out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Celtic Christianity today, we think of it in terms of religion, whether it's whatever denomination you happen to be involved with, but it's all uh, institutionalized. Whereas. Um, Jesus was just a human being like the rest of us, you know, right. and um, if you go right back to him and his story and his teachings, he wasn't a bit dogmatic for a start. No. He didn't lay down the law. He didn't issue commandments. He gave advice. Right. And he, his advice came in the form of stories and pictures and his own personal example, which meant you could take out of whatever he was illustrating to you any way you liked. And that's what he wanted, because when you have examples in the Gospels of where the apostles are asking him to explain what he's just done, and he, he answers like in poetry or like in a riddle. It's it's not a clear-cut black and white answer. You must right. do this, this, and this. Um, so I think, you know, if you go back to him, he allowed for people to interpret his message according to their own uh interest and, and direction in their lives. And that's the approach the Celtic, the early Celtic monks took. 
Um, they weren't interested in the institutional church when they visited Europe because the institutional church expressed itself mainly in cities and large towns. The bishop lived in the palace in the city yeah. and the, the structure was similar to the Roman Empire itself. Whereas Ireland doesn't ha- didn't have any cities at that time. So people from Ireland who went visiting um, were more interested in something that was happening in the countryside. And the only thing they could find there were these very um, primitive versions of monasticism, which they were in. Martin of Tours had started one in what's now France. There were there was one down on an island, a place called Laran in the Mediterranean. There were a few others around, but that's what interested them. And so it was more a lifestyle thing than a set of teachings that, that uh, interested them. And when they came back to Ireland, that's the way they chose to try and model their their life. So if you look at the Irish tradition in those early hundreds of years, you won't find any dogmatic teaching at all. You won't find any discussion of what the Roman Church would call a heresy right. <coughs> or orthodox teaching. It just it's not a topic in the Celtic version of Christianity. What Celtic Christianity is about is experiential. It's trying to live in such a way that you best experience the divine in your life. That's what it's about. And that's why they chose to live in these amazingly beautiful remote places where they could insert themselves into nature at its richest. And that's what I've discovered by coming to live here in the Iron Islands. <coughs> Excuse me. I've inserted myself into nature at its richest by living out on this remote island. And that's where I get a sense of the divine, not from sitting in some church or prayer mat with my eyes closed, but out observing nature, out looking at the birds on the feeder, out looking at the sun setting, out watching the amazing waves on the sea when it's stormy, all those things. They're the things which bring me in touch with the divine. Absolutely. You have to sometimes have to slow down and and just look at what's happening. The amazement of the little things. And that was the teaching of the Celtic monks. It was that it's all around you. There's marvels and wonders and amazing things happening all around you. Just open your eyes, open your ears, open all the senses you've been given, and you'll you'll get in touch with the divine. And it'll it'll make you feel supported, blessed, wonderful. You know, there's so many adjectives that one could use for how you then can live your life. And everything else then, of course, comes into the context of that. That's what these monks were after. So they were trying to perfect their lives. They were trying to be the best version of themselves that they could possibly be. So they constantly tried to practice the virtues, you know, patience, kindness, gentleness, all these things. And I think that's what made Ireland into a place that was called, um, what was it? Well, our golden age was, yeah, an island of saints and scholars. Right. That's, that's, I think, why that happened, because these people who were, if you like, driving this new vision um, wanted to be the best they could be in themselves. And that made them very inspirational to others and, and meant they were actually very productive and fruitful in their lives as well. And we have evidence of that all over Europe, where when they went out to Europe, they, just, they did the most amazing things. I visited Sicily recently and um, I came across a saint out there and trying to remember the name of it now, might come to me. Um, but I saw his name on, the, on a church in Sicily. And it's, that sounds like an Irish name, just <laughs> a bit adapted to look like it's an Italian name or a Latin name. And I looked it up and sure enough, it was an Irish saint from Wexford who had wandered all across Europe trying to find what he called his place of resurrection and got fed up, actually. 
he traveled even as far as Jerusalem. And at that stage, he'd reached the end of his journeying and decided he'd just come home to Ireland. He didn't find anywhere that he felt he could settle in. But on his way home, he had a, he was on a boat and it hit a storm and he was shipwrecked and nearly drowned. And he was washed ashore onto Sicily. And when the locals found him, they they apparently recognized his genius and his gifts and his charism and all that. And he ended up being the Bishop of Sicily and is now the patron saint of the whole of Southern Italy. (laughs) (laughs) So he did something right at the end of his life, you know, something. And that's exactly, that's a typical story of, of the Celtic tradition is that, you know, there's, there's a bigger plan out there for you than perhaps you understand and you have to be open to it. And, and it'll happen in the most um, unexpected way. And then you discover who you really are and what your real work is about. I think I've discovered that in my life. I'm, I'm very, uh, very, I feel very privileged to have found it. But yeah, certainly, I mean, had I remained a priest in, in the normal sense of the word, I think, as one doctor said to me at the time, I think I'd be now on sleeping tablets and lithium. That's what he said to me. He said, if you stay where you are, you're not happy, you're very discontented, you're a square peg in a round hole, you're going to end up on sleeping tablets and lithium to try and cope with your life. I think that's absolutely true. But thankfully, I managed to get away from that, found what I really, who I really was and where I was really meant to live. And I've really never looked back since then. So I wish that for everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's such a tough thing to do. I'm just it now, is. you know, I'm going to be 50 in a couple of months and I'm just now trying, starting to find my way. Um, and most people never find their way, it seems like. And that does seem like that. One of the things I've been promoting in you know, my recent YouTube um, videos about Celtic practices is the point of stopping, slowing down, and, and living in the moment. Everybody's so concerned with what they just did and what they have to do and and whatever else. They get lost, and then everyone, it's fine to have goals and dreams, but everyone's so focused on them that they, they're not open to any opportunity um, to discover something new, to have any epiphany, to, to, as you would say, to you know discover the divine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, within the Celtic tradition, there's lots of teachings that would help people to do exactly what you're saying. Like they talk about um, the need to uh, get away from the normal structures of your life. That's why the monks um, went traveling. They called it wandering. So they weren't even uh, going, uh, you know, if you ask them where you're going, they wouldn't be able to answer you because they're just following their nose. You know, the, the image for them on a boat is that the boat has a sail, but no rudder. So, you know, the wind will carry you where it's meant to carry you. And that's the sort of image for these monks' lives. You allow the spirit, which is like the wind is a metaphor for, uh, to, to lead you to where you are meant to go. And you just, be, as you say, live in the moment and watch where you're being brought and because in the end, what you have to do is say yes to that or no to that. And if you say no to it, then you're not going to realize your full destiny. Whereas if you say yes to it, the life force itself will bring you to the fulfill- fulfillment of your destiny, as is shown by all the stories of the Celtic monks, men and women, not just men. Right. So it's a very inspirational tradition with lots of tools and practical ways of thinking to help you uh, get the full, as Jesus said, get to the fullness of life. Yeah, I mean, 
there's just so many struggles these days with especially after the pandemic with mental health with anxiety and depression and and all these things and <laughs> it seems like everyone is more suffering than 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 uh happy these days and you know i'm fortunately one of them my anxiety and depression is hereditary as opposed to necessarily um event driven but it's a terrible feeling and i i feel for anybody suffering or going through something like that and you now look it took me almost a year of trying different medications and combinations to get to a somewhat stable level and it's horrible to have to rely on drugs and that that was what started my journey now to uh I said to myself, you know, what could be out there? What has ever been most happiness and, and most stable and most in tune with nature and the world? And that's about a month or the month in total I spent in Ireland. And then I went, okay, what, what was it there? You know, I started digging deep and I just had this epiphany that there was something in a Celtic culture and what remains of it and what's embedded in the people there, whether they realize it or not, that made me, better not cure better and i've been pursuing this path now to see what celtic ways practices whatever it might be um way of thinking might help people um do you have any thoughts on you know anything in particular that might help in those situations absolutely yes yes um you came to Ireland and you stayed for a month in Ireland. It was two 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 week periods, a month two, two week period, and it sort of changed your life, right? Correct. Um, and you know, it's not just Celtic people or people with a Celtic tradition who advise this, but the Dalai Lama advises it. Other people advise it to get out of the place where you are sort of in your routine, in your comfort zones. Get out and do something. That's a bit challenging. That's a bit different. That's not in your routine. And coming to Ireland or going anywhere is one way to do that. The Dalai Lama says, make sure you go to a place you've never been to before at least once every year. And I think that's <laughs> great advice. And that's very equivalent to the Celtic monks. Get out of your comfort zone and go and do something different. I've been thinking a lot about these monks. These Irish monks, when they went into Europe, I'm talking about from the sixth century onwards. The Roman Empire had collapsed in Europe at that time. So the place is in chaos. There's wars going on everywhere, and not, not just in Rome. Like The whole Europe is, is being shook up and broken down by various tribes coming in from outside. And so there's wars and battles, and Latin is no longer the common language. There's all sorts of different languages. The whole civilization collapses, including all people's access to learning how to read and write. So people began to become illiterate again over there, including the leaders, kings and queens. So the Irish who are leaving the country to go into that environment were leaving a very settled, thriving Ireland. We weren't involved in the Roman Empire. We never were right. uh, caught by them. So we had we were suffering no collapse. In fact, we were suffering our gold. We were ex we were experiencing our golden age. We were producing these amazing scholars in Latin and Greek, people who had become very um impressive and inspirational in their lives. And here they were deciding to leave all that. Nice, peaceful country, plenty of food and drink. The monks had, had got to the point where they are now being held in high esteem. So they had status within their community. They're leaving all of that, getting onto a rickety boat 
and heading off for God knows where, <laughs> and then arriving into a Europe that was in chaos. So, like, they really put a challenge in front of themselves. They called it exile for Christ, by the way. Hmm. So they weren't, they weren't going to Europe to do anything in particular to convert other people. They were doing it because they knew that would be the way they would best find out who they really were if they had to face all these challenges, which, of course, they did. So there's a fantastic image. <laughs> if you allow yourself to just break away from your routine, even if it's only a holiday for two weeks, but for young people, it can be a whole year away traveling right. the world. You know, and lots of young people do that. And I say it's one of the best things any young person can do is just get out there and put yourself in danger in a wise way, maybe. But, right. you know, take take on the challenges of life and you'll probably come back transformed. So I, I would advise that for everybody is give yourself give yourself time and space where you don't have pressure on you to do this, that and the other during the day where you have nothing in your calendar except to except to go off and looking at, at ancient monuments or, or beautiful scenery or whatever it is. And and watch what happens to you when you're in that place, because that's where the divine has less walls to break down to get through to you. And that's obviously clearly what happened to you, Mike. Mike and and, and, and over and over again to lots of people. If you're enjoying this video with Dara Malloy and would like to see more interviews like this one, then please let me know by giving a big old kelp to click to the thumbs up button. So uh, getting back to what I was saying, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I went to my ancestral homeland, so to speak, in Ireland, um, you know, in Longford, um, or on Longford, um, I remember just sitting, you know, in a field in the grass and just looking around and all of a sudden, like everything just like a peacefulness just washed over me. And that's kind of, like I said, why I kind of pursued um, Celtic, Celtic spirituality to look into possible relief for uh, anxiety and depression. Wow. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That was a fantastic experience you had. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I had one very similar because when I came to Aaron with that group of young people who were camping, every day we used to sit in a circle in the field and we pray together because they were a prayer group that I had established. So every day we'd read a piece of scripture and we used to take the piece of scripture that was set for the day by the church. So we didn't have any choice. We just took what was given and it was in the book I brought with me. But one of the, one of the gospel passages on a particular day when we were there was um, Jesus telling the story about a man who found a treasure in a field. So you were sitting in a field, I was sitting in a field, and this story was about a man who had found a treasure in a field. And off he went and he sold everything he had so that he could buy the field. That's the story, like it's few, just a few sentences long. But what an image when you're sitting in the field and having this amazing experience, which you were having and which I also was having. And it led to you to change your life, to change my life in another. So there's a very, very deep le lesson there. As I think there's a lesson to be learned from you having sat in a field and having an experience that, that's changed your life and me having sat in a field and had an experience that's changed my life. And I think it's to do with connection to place. That is somewhere actually maybe physical, maybe not physical, maybe physical. I'm not going to try and define it too much, but maybe physical. There's somewhere out there in the world 
where you will feel whole, blessed, healed, inspired. I don't know what exactly the word is, but the description of it is in the vocabulary of these Celtic monks. They called it your place of resurrection. And I have another image to try and describe it. I think in all of us, there's a river flowing. You can call it the river of life. But we don't have it. We haven't all found that river yet. It's there somewhere within us, but we're perhaps living outside of it altogether. But then if you're aware and if you try to be aware, and as you said, Mike, live in the moment, you won't miss that experience that you'll have at some moment where, oh, now I feel I'm in the river. Now I've stepped into it. Now I can feel the flow of it. Right. Get out there, get out there into the center of it and let it carry you. Like Jesus had the image of getting in touch with the waters of life within you. You know, he was standing at a well beside a, with a woman beside the well. And he was saying, you know, I can offer you the waters of life and you'll find it within yourself. And and I'm inclined to think it's not just still water like in a well. This is a flowing river. And if you get into the middle of it, you can just allow that river to carry you to your destiny. And, it, and you feel so happy and so contented within it because it's who you really are. Um, and and you become who you really are over the course of that journey. So um, that's what I would say to people. You know, lots of other things I would say to people to to get mental health because I've had four kids growing up in a world which is really struggling with mental health. Like only this morning we've got uh, we got news that somebody we know very well came downstairs, went down into the basement, and found somebody else who'd been living in the house with them hanging from a rope. That's only that's only news this morning. And he was 26 years of age. They were all friends living in the house for years. And still, that's what happened to him. Unfortunately, that's a common story these days. I know. it's Exactly. And I worry about it all the time for my own kids. Mental health has become a real issue for people in life today. Not just the young people, but maybe especially the young people. And, and we have to find ways. And I know that my own kids have found ways to deal with it through just getting out into the fresh air, taking plenty of exercise, and there's plenty of ways to do that out here because we live in the wild. It's beautiful. We yeah, you have that great advantage. Exactly. But anywhere where there's nature. Um, another one of my kids does it through yoga. Um, so so there, there's you have to find the practice that's right for you and that nourishes you. But certainly, like, even your doctor will tell you this. Get your diet right, plenty of exercise, and plenty of sleep. They're the three main things. After that, I think nature will nourish you. There's the food for your life out there in nature. Find out what it is that, that's really drawing you. Like for me, it's the wildlife of the birds in particular. But ev everything in nature excites me, but the birds in particular excite me. And that's where I find I go to all the time. Every day I spend time just watching the birds at the bird feeder through my binoculars. And it's just, to me, it's magic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of times, you just have to open up your eyes. Yeah, yeah. You have, to, you have to look at everything with a you know a bit of a sense of wonder, um, and, and it, does, it goes beyond even just nature. Um, my cousin uh, was a scientist, and he always told the story how when he was uh, going for his doctorate at Columbia University in New York, um, a famous Italian scientist was brought over to help him. Um, his name was Bernardini. 
And every morning when they came into the lab, Bernardini would just stand at the door at the light switch, turning it on and off and saying, fantastico, fantastico. <laughs> just like, just, just like to him, just the amazement of the fact that electricity being generated someplace else far away was traveling to him safely and, and illuminating a bulb on command. It was like a miracle to him. And yeah, the, the, those things of wonder are definitely in nature. But they're all around us in everything we do, you know. I, I exactly. I don't maybe not get out as, as much, but you know, I'm sitting in my office now, and I open up the blinds, and it's snowing out, and I go watch the snow and see how the animals are reacting. Everything's anywhere. Everything's anywhere. Even the wonder of us being able to talk today, and I'm out on the Atlantic Ocean off Ireland, and you're I don't know where actually. I New don't York. know where. New York. <laughs> New York, right? <laughs> but the fact that we're able to face each other. And and see each other and listen to each other and talk to each other. It's that's amazing. That's fantastico as well. Yeah, that's there's mean, wonders everywhere. I half wish it wasn't true because then I'd have to come out there to visit you to talk to you. Right, <laughs> be yes. an excuse. Yeah, it would be an excuse. Yeah, well, we'd all love to travel, but I mean, the realistically, we're not all going to get to everywhere we'd like to go. No. This is a this is definitely fantastic, and you know, the young people from Ireland emigrated to places all over the world. And that was the last you saw of them. But now it's so different. You can be in touch with them every day if you wish and see their kitchen and their living quarters and how they look and how they dress, apart from just hearing their voices. So it's a wonderful richness that we, that we have created with human yeah. ingenuity. But then we, too, are part of the magic of nature. I think that's one of the things we have to learn and recognize is that we're not separate from nature. We're not something that came in alien. Right. Uh, to nature, which is the way we've sort of dealt with nature up to now, as if it's something different than us, and it's just a resource for us. And we've got to get away from that and realize that that actually we're we're in the mix here, and we're all interconnected, and our behavior affects others, not just other people, but the whole planet and other living species as well. And yeah. I think the more we reintegrate ourselves back into that sense of being part of something greater, which is full of wonder and mystery, um, I think will soothe us and soothe our nerves and our anxiety and help us to relax a little bit and, if you like, allow the river of life to carry us. Yeah. I mean, I remember telling my little daughter, you know, saying, you know, we're part of nature, too. She's like, no, but I'm not outside in the wild. I'm like, yeah, no, right. but, but you're still an animal. And ran to my wife, mommy, daddy called me an animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, so she did explain it. Yeah. But even she, at a very young age, has absorbed this idea that she's somehow different from the animal kingdom. And, you know, there's a huge revolution has to take place in our mindset, in our way of approaching nature. And yeah. we haven't done that yet. Part of my critique of modern monotheism, well, modern, it's been there a long time. But my part of my critique of it is that by having this idea that God lives somewhere else um, adds to this notion that therefore... It, there's nothing divine about what's here and, and therefore we can use it any way we like. It's just dead matter. And, you know, if we want to manipulate it, that's fine. Whereas if you take the notion that the divine is everywhere, it's in everything, it's in you, it's in me, but it's also in the trees outside and the animals outside and the grass that's growing and it's in the sea and it's in the weather. It's just, it's everything material is the manifestation of the divine. That's how I see it. And that's how the Celtic monks saw it. And it's also how the pre-Christian Celtic people saw it. You know, if you go back to them, they were polytheists. Mm -hmm. They they saw the divine in everything, and they 
they felt that your experience of the divine in a way could be divided up into different um, sections, if you like. So if you experience the divine in the sea, you can you can sort of describe that as the god of the sea, Mananon. And they, they created these, this is their imagination, I believe. They created these uh, images of gods and goddesses that would reflect in some way the experience that they would have at those locations. So you have... Or at, or at those times in the year either, because they had gods for seasons as well and gods for thunder and lightning. Um, so that everywhere they went in nature, they had already developed a vocabulary and a culture which saw within nature something spiritual as well as something material. And they were able to give names to that because they had developed all this great uh, pantheon of gods and goddesses, which was sort of endless. You know, if you try to list them all, I don't think you can ever come to a definitive number. Um, it just went on and on. Right. Um, so there's a lot to be said for looking back at that and seeing how they lived within nature, seeing the spiritual everywhere and how that made them so respectful and so sensitive to everything, every way they behaved in nature. Right. No, definitely. We've lost all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the gods of the pagans are, are definitely uh, very interesting and, what kind of draws me to them a bit is the fact that they're as the people were, they recognize their gods to be flawed and to have problems and not be this perfect all knowing omnipotent being, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's another major difference between the modern monotheist God of modern religions. And I'm not just talking about Christianity. I'm also talking about Islam. It has a similar God. Judaism has a similar God. And quite a number of other religions have a similar one God living in the heavens. Um, that God uh, is prescriptive. That's the word I give it. So that God, if you look carefully at it, issues commandments. He's judgmental. There's a right way and a wrong way right. to believe and to think and to behave. And you better follow the rules or you won't get into heaven. Um, that's the prescriptive God. Whereas if you look at these more ancient gods and goddesses, not just of Celtic tradition, but as you say, the Roman culture or the Egyptian culture, or the Greek culture, they're the ones I'm more familiar with, but there's plenty more out there. Yeah, Norse. Yeah, none of them that I've come across are prescriptive. These gods were reflecting the best and the worst of human behavior, if you like. And you took messages from that, from that story, the stories of those gods, how you desired. You know, so like, for example, in, in the Greek tradition, um, apparently w within the stories of the gods and goddesses of the Greek tradition, you can find gender issues, you can find homosexuality issues, you can find issues around abortion, all the, all the, contra all the controversial subjects that we're still trying to grapple with today, they're all in that mythology, which meant that it's like a library for people who can't read. You know, it's all these stories right. which are handed down through the generations. And you pull down the story that applies to your situation at the time. It doesn't tell you the answer, but it reflects it back to you from a sort of a mythological distant perspective, maybe, that can help you find the answer. Right. Kind so of looking very, at yourself through the mirror. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. These gods and goddesses were like looking at yourself through the mirror, correct? Yeah. So much, much different uh, religion, religious belief system than the, than the modern monotheist religions. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame all that's been you know, largely lost. 
I, I really well, wish it hasn't all together. No, no, um, not all together. But it's yeah. you know, I look at my local community. You know, I, yeah. I can't speak for everybody. I'm on Long Island in New York, mm. and growing up, just because of the way things immigration happened, you know, it was mostly Roman Catholic because of all the Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants, and Italians, uh, yeah. to a small extent, the German immigrants, and then you know, you had your fair share of um, of, of Jewish people. Yeah. But, you know, the church was the church. Everybody, you know, in school, we went to religion class once a week after school. We went on Saturdays, we went to church. Yeah. You know, it was it was all there. And then it seems like over time, people have gotten so disillusioned and the way society has changed um, to, to, to less religious. And, 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 and it just seems like now people have just gone the complete opposite way on the pendulum. There's no middle ground. There's no... There is another answer. It's not either extreme. Well, um, maybe I'm in the happy position of finding the middle. Yeah. Because I work with people mostly who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So these are obviously younger people because I do wedding ceremonies for them. They're younger people getting married. They often come from very religious backgrounds. And they say to me, you know, I want to keep some elements of how I grew up, but... I can't say I don't go to church every Sunday anymore, but I I am spiritual and I do want to remain spiritual. Um, and there's a huge, there's a vacuum there because when you get down to it, they can't describe what really, where their, where their position is. They don't have a vocabulary for it. Right. You, they, they don't want to use the religious vocabulary anymore, um, but there's no practice of using any other vocabulary. Um, so, but if I say to them, Oh, um, does that mean you, you love walking out in nature? You know, uh, do you find do you find a lot of sustenance or nourishment or support in nature? Oh, yes, definitely. That would be a plus all the way across the the uh, you know the, uh, any couples that I talk to. It's nature. It's getting out into fresh air. It's going off to see amazing places in the world. A lot of travel involved. So travel and nature, and many of these people um, also do practice if you like what I call discipline in their lives. You know, they're careful how they eat, um, not just in terms of a healthy diet, but also maybe in terms of conscientious, where the further food comes from, right. how people are treated and producing it. There's an ethical side to it as well. So I think that's the way, the, that's the way uh, young people in Western society that I meet, that's the way they're moving. They're moving towards living more conscientiously, more ethically, more and more um, in nature, and less interested in religion, but more interested in being the best version of themselves they can possibly be. Right. Um, and I think that's the way forward. And um, there's the Celtic tradition can help a lot with that. I think if people are interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in addition just to the spirituality and nature of nature and connecting with it, I also kind of believe there's a cultural spirituality. Um, in that, for example, um, I was raised Roman Catholic. My father's family is Roman Catholic. My mother grew up Jewish. But to okay. me, you know, I don't practice either religion, but I keep cultural aspects alive, spirituality-wise. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't realize you don't have matzah, matzah and Easter eggs don't go together. I had no clue. <laughs> to me, it, it, no, just, of course. it just did. You know, yeah. and the same thing with aspects of spirituality from both. You can have just because it's your your heredity, heredity, your tradition, you know, where you came from, I think it's okay 
some to take aspects of monotheistic religion that might have been in your family's past and take the spiritual side of them, not necessarily the religious side of them. So I kind of call it like a cultural spirituality. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we have a great practice here on the island of visiting holy wells. Right, There's one yeah. just below my house here. And that goes way back. I've traced the history of that. That goes way back into the Druidic practices, you know, because for the Druids, a holy well was an entrance into the womb of Mother Earth. And Mother Earth had a name, like the Irish name for Mother Earth was Eriu. But she had other names as well. Anu would be another very mm -hmm. ancient name for the Earth. Um, so, you know, people have been honoring these holy wells all over our country for thousands of years. And it's still an active practice today. Like the local people still keep it up. Not everybody, because there's nobody pressurizing you to do it. There's nobody waving finger at you and saying, you know, you won't go to heaven if you don't do it. Um, but as you say, people have chosen to do it because it's a cultural practice that they enjoy, that they get nourishment from, and that helps them. Yeah. Um, so I encourage people to, to, to do those sorts of things all the time. Yeah, I mean, my philosophy that I'm trying to build, like I said, to filter in Celtic spirituality and ways and practices um, for mental health benefits, and it could really be for you know any spirituality, is the importance of, of having a good base. Um, mm -hmm. Anything you build on top of it, to me, you know, it, it's at risk of falling over and toppling yeah. if you don't have a good base. What I am advising people who talk to me about this is. Even though there's so many great places in the world to go, I think it's important for everybody to go to the places their ancestors are from, um, just to solidify that connection. Even if you don't know the exact place they're from, but to even the general area, just, just to get that feeling and that connection to me is part of building that strong base to add everything on top of. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And what I've learned over the years is that there's an inner and an outer in our lives, and they both are the same. That's not easy to understand now, but they are both the same. So you can do it the outer way and go to an actual place of your ancestors and sit in the field <laughs> and do it that way. Or, But you can equally go to an inner place within yourself and find the same base within there. And that might suit some people better than others, like because I live with a woman who's a Jungian psychologist, I've understood this a lot more, that um, some people are introvert. So they get their energy from going inside themselves. And some people are extrovert. So they get their energy from going outside themselves. Like I'm an extrovert. And I've learned that I get my energy from working on projects with other people. So you know, for some people who are extrovert, they like to sit in the pub and drink beer and just be with, with with other people hanging out. And that's where they get energy. I hate that. I don't like that at all. And I don't like sitting in pubs for any length of time. But put me on a committee with an objective, an agenda. I love that. I love achieving things together as a group. So I'm a particular type of extrovert. But my wife is a particular type of introvert. And that's where she goes to get her energy. So people have to be true to themselves. I think that's part of the process of of maybe being healthy and well in your life is to know who you are more and more. You, you, you never know fully who you are. You spend your whole life learning. Right. Um, but make it a priority to know who you are and to be true to who you are. And 
and celebrate who you are. Um, one of the things you were saying there is about having a good basis on which to build your life. I totally agree. Um, and one of my criticisms of particularly Roman Catholicism is that people were reared, including myself, with the idea that we were that we were we were damaged. We were damaged by original sin. We were we were lost unless God chose to save us. Um, we were so damaged that we'd be more likely to sin than not to sin in our lives. It was this very negative view of myself that I was given growing up, which led me to believe I was flawed, led me to believe I couldn't really be confident to do what I wanted to do or achieve what I wanted to achieve in my life. Very damaging to my own self-image and certainly gave me issues around sexuality in particular. Um, all I put down to the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic perspective on those things. Um, now I've learned that if you manage to get into the world as a young person, if you've got that far, you've already equivalent, you're already equivalent to having won the lottery. And I'm talking about millions in the lottery. Like it's such a huge gift and a blessing to have been given the gift of living on this earth. And that's the first thing. And then just the journey of discovering who you actually are, that gift of, of that you've been given, like you don't know who you are. You slowly become aware over life. And that should be one of your most important priorities is to find out who you are with the help of others, of course, and be true to yourself. And I think if you do that, that sort of, in a way, guarantees mental health. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Yeah, but I mean, it's definitely. I have a feeling. I have a feeling it, it would bring health. Well, I know for certain that, at least in my mind, that the people who aren't interested in finding themselves and learning who they are, those are the people who are more interested in becoming a certain person or, be, or achieving some certain goals that they miss the forest for the trees because they never really learn who they are and, and you know, how they can use who they are to possibly achieve those goals. They're just kind of skipping over that. The thing is that the real goals that are out there for you to achieve um, may not be something that you're aware of. Exactly. You, you know, you if you're true to who you are, you're not interested in the fruit that comes from your tree because the fruit is something that comes automatically when the tree is healthy. So what you need to concentrate on is being healthy and being the very best you can be. And the fruit will take care of itself. And we know from stories of people in the past, sometimes that fruit has been has been recognized in your lifetime. And sometimes it's only after your death that people really see the fruit of your life. So in a way, you have no control over the fruit, no right. control over there for these aims and objectives, which you may think you have in your life. Forget them. Just be true to who you are and and be who you're meant to be and the fruit will take care of itself. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to do. I mean, I've struggled with it, it too. I mean, yeah. I was an accountant for my entire adult life for you know over 30 years and and I was miserable. And I just didn't know I, I kept saying, Why am I here? What am I doing? Like, yeah, it's great to make money for my family and whatever else, but it's just like this. There's no reason. There's nothing to look forward to. It just over and over again. And you know, when I quit my job and started pursuing this this passion, you know, it, everything made more sense. Yeah. When you find your passion, you found the river of life within you. That's just another word for it. 
And yeah. I think it's great to hear young people being encouraged today to be true to their passion, to find their passion and be true to it. And that's one of my criticisms of modern day education, that we we throw all these young people into an institutional schooling system as if they were raw material. And we try to process them with standard processes that are the same for everybody. And it doesn't work because everybody's different and everybody has their own destiny that they have to discover. And, uh, you know, schooling is absolutely upside down. It should be completely the reverse of the way it is. It should begin with respecting each person who comes into that institutional building as a unique individual. And the job of the system, if we have a system, has to be to recognize where it is they're going in their life and support them. Yeah. I mean, to me, the biggest function of the schools is to, to teach the kids the tools they need to get yeah. where they want to go or need to go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But to do that, you need to help them to find out where they need to go and what they need for the journey. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's a right time and a wrong time for people to learn things. So you probably know that. I certainly know that. I've been learning all my life. But if like here in Ireland, a good, this is a good example because you, I believe, Mike, are, are learning Irish and you have Irish lessons. Well, if you had grown up in Ireland, you would have had an Irish class teaching you Irish every day of your school life from the first day you entered <laughs> to the day you left high school. Um, and yet there's young people who have come out of that system without being able to speak Irish because they had no interest. And in fact, they hated it. And I meet them now and they're in their early 30s. And they're saying, oh, why didn't I learn Irish? I'd really like to be fluent in it. And because the timing wasn't right. You can only learn these things when the timing is right. You, you, as you're doing now, you're, you're taking Irish lessons now because mm -hmm. you're ready for it. If you'd been taking them in school when you weren't interested, they probably would just have passed you over and you wouldn't have ever learned. Well, in that case, Absolutely. it's also a matter of um, you know, how it's taught. I Absolutely. Mean, I yeah. mean, I took Spanish in high school and the way it was taught, I mean... I took it for four years and I got a 94 on a New York state test, but I can't speak a word of it. You know, <laughs> the way it, it's the way it's, you know, it's taught and presented and how you can absorb it. Like my Irish teacher, Parikh, you know, we do a completely different thing. He, he, he designs lessons to my needs and what okay. I'm interested in, what I want. And that's okay. kind of how school really should be. Exactly. It's how school should be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have enough to learn an awful lot to learn about ourselves and, how best to look after ourselves personally and communally. And we're a long way away from that at the moment, but maybe, maybe there's hope that we get there. I hope so. I, I really do. And it just seems like since COVID started and everything's continuing with wars and bank collapses and everything else, yeah, it, it gets yeah. harder and harder to have hope, but you know, I think there still is some. Well, in one way, it gets harder and harder, but I take great um, comfort, isn't the right word, something as inspiration maybe from the war in Ukraine and how that emergency that came onto the borders of that country totally uh, inflamed the Ukrainian people to rise to the occasion. Like to me, they're just amazing. They're extraordinary. They're so resilient. Like even even the elderly are finding something to do to support the war. They just are so committed and so united. And it's really strengthening them. And hopefully we will all learn from that war, which I hope we will win. Um, we'll all learn from it just the importance of community and what the priorities within that community need to be 
and what the values need to be and what we need to work hard to protect and preserve. Um, you know, we've learned so many lessons from this war already, but I think there's an awful lot more to be learned. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully, I hope it all goes well. I mean, yeah. I, I previously mentioned uh, uh, Jewish ancestors came from the Ukraine. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, what is now the Ukraine? You know, the territory yes, kept yeah. changing. It was Russia. Yeah. It was Ottoman Empire. It was Austria yeah. Hungary. But yeah, it's now yeah. what it's what it now is Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're all one at the end of the day, you know, no matter what color our skin is or whatever language we speak. Um, we're all the one human, we're all the one members of the human species. And we all feel very similarly and experience things very similarly. And, you know, there's so many challenges to that conception of ourselves in the world today, especially, for example, through migration. It's a real, real issue to know. How, how do we deal with it? But certainly we shouldn't deal with it by saying that's them and this is us. You know, well, that's what the world's coming to. Every, everyone's going yeah. to be, you know, everyone has to be put in a tribe. And, you know, I don't want to get too political, but mm. everything I feel like is done lately to be polarizing. I mean, yeah. this person's this color, that person's the other color. I mean, my wife is Asian. She's from Taiwan. Okay. My children okay. are, mi are mixed race. I don't okay. see them as my Asian wife and my and, no. and my children. It's my wife yeah. and my children. I don't even process that. And that's how I was brought up to be in the schools and in society. And now it's all changing. And yeah, I find that a little disturbing. It's very disturbing. I mean, maybe migration is a real issue. I mean, if somebody came to your house and wanted to live in it, you know, alongside yourself and your wife <laughs> and your kids, you might want to resist them, or you. But I can't do it by treating them some something other than humans. So our our first response has got to be, I think, compassion, and then see how we can resolve the issue in a way that respects their humanity, um, rather than that treats them as aliens or as invaders or some other word like that. You know. Yeah, unfortunately, things just get everything's complex, and it's never any easy answer to it. I mean, yeah. we have the whole problem at the U.S. southern border, you do, and there, yeah. there are people who who legitimately need to come here, you know, and that's fine and well. But a lot of mm -hmm. people are coming just because they'd rather make a little bit more money mm -hmm. or something like that. And, and there's a system yeah. for that. My my yeah. wife came here legally. They they came. They right. they waited however many years to get a green card. They waited however many more. Took a citizenship test, passed it, and you know, and made American citizens. And there's nothing mm. wrong with that. The system could be improved, no. I'm sure. But you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of people who would like to come here legally. Yeah, I mean, even that's it. Yeah, and and America actually, despite all the issues around migration, has a very compassionate approach to people who want to migrate to America, and has always had. Um, so it's some it's something to be admired, I think. Um, I, we in Europe have, if you like, similar migration issues, not here in Ireland so much because we're so far north, west. But down on the Mediterranean, there are real issues of migration there where people are coming in on boats and some of them are getting drowned and the boats are capsizing. And then they're brought ashore and there's nowhere for them to go except into a camp. Yeah. And, um, you know, but we're going to have to deal with all those issues and we're going to have to deal with them in a way. Well, I don't think they'll be fully resolved until we treat each person whether they're a migrant or not, as a human being. Yeah. Similar feelings and emotions and everything else to ourselves and therefore treat them with compassion and empathy and just find a solution. After, after that, it's just a solution. It's a logistical problem.
Yeah, I mean, but as long as everything is a, a political football, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's not it's much. Difficult. It'd be yeah. very long and difficult to change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you find this interview valuable and would like to see more like it, then please give a big old Celtic click to the subscribe button, and don't forget about the bell icon so you can be notified anytime I upload a new interview or great content. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about Celtic spirituality or anything at all? Yeah, there's, um, what I'm trying to do in my life at this point in my life is find resources within the Celtic tradition, spirituality tradition, that are applicable today in a practical way. And because my focus is on uh, religious ceremonies, well, spiritual ceremonies, that's where I try to make use of that tradition. So my ceremonies have become uh, full of rituals, I call them. So a ritual is an action that has been given a specific meaning. So everything in the ritual, if it's an object I use, it's taking on a symbolic value. It's like it's like a poem, which would be in words, but, but it's a poem in action. So it's something physically being done. And it can give people an experience which, if you like, bypasses the mind because it's not really words. Um, so you can experience something by doing this ritual. I'll tell you a very simple example, which has nothing to do with Celtic spirituality at all. Um, all my kids have learned that when they want to remember somebody who's dying or who is going through some hard time or is having an operation, they've all learned I'm going to light a candle for that person. There's a ritual that they're doing, a very simple one, but it seems to encapsulate all their emotion and feelings and wishes for that person just to light the candle right. because they know why they've lit it. Now, there's a very simple example. So I've I've started to use some of the ancient practices, and we've spoken about this already, some of the cultural practices of the ancient past in our Celtic tradition to bring them in to modern rituals. So because... When people get married today, they no longer get married in a standard, well, some of them no longer get married in a standard church ceremony. Um, when they come to me, I sit down with them and we create a ceremony in which every element of the ceremony is only there because they want it to be there. So nothing is imposed. Um, and I offer them all of these possibilities of rituals within the ceremony. So, for example, the blessing of the man and woman. If I can explain that just a little bit, just to give a taste, but there's lots more than that in the ceremony. Blessing of the man and woman is this idea, which comes from the Celtic tradition, that out there beyond us is a source of the masculine and a source of the feminine. I call it the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. So in our tradition, we gave images to that source. We had we had places in nature where we could connect ourselves to that source. So in the case of the masculine, you connected to the source of the sacred masculine through the oak tree. So that being the case, this man is in front of me. He's about to have a big moment in his life marrying this beautiful woman. It's a big transition moment. Let's call in all the sacred sources of his masculinity uh, to be there for him, to be true to this commitment he wants to make as a, as a man, as a man and as a husband, and perhaps as a father in the future. So I take 
a branch of this oak tree. You're supposed to take it from the very top, so we can go into more detail. There's no point now, <laughs> but just it's like there's a lot of guidance in the tradition. So I take this uh, topmost twig of an oak tree, and I, having sort of set the scene with some words, I then symbolically bring down a blessing onto the shoulders, each shoulder of the man with the oak tree. Having explained first that what we're trying to do here is connect him to this greater source of his own masculinity. So I, I do the same then for the bride, but she connects, if you like, the masculine sacred is up in the sky and you pull it down through this oak tree symbolism. The feminine sacred source is in the earth itself and you draw it up. Um, and so the bride is asked to put her hands into the water of a holy well, which was symbolic always in our tradition of reaching into that sacred feminine. So I put the water of a holy well into a bowl, make it easy for them. And she puts her hands into the water to connect herself to that sacred feminine. So there's there's an example of the sort of thing I've been able to do with modern day ceremonies. I don't ever want them to be set in stone. You know, that's what tends to happen right, in right. the church. They have to be constantly fluid and flexible and adjusting to the actual people getting married as well as to the times and so on. So when I'm gone, I hope that people will continue to use them, but not in a fixed way, more in a fluid way that they can adapt them and adjust them and develop them as is appropriate for the moment. Right. But there's lots of resources there that I've discovered I can use within modern day practices and especially rituals. So like I do blessings of people's houses. I do ceremonies for the celebration of a newborn child. I do a lot of vow renewals. I'm doing one tomorrow. And I do funerals and I'll do the blessing of the sick. I really do anything like that of a spiritual nature, which involves ritual, um, if people want me to. So, and I can draw in from the Irish tradition or the Celtic tradition, lots of resources and inspirations for that, including, by the way, the Celtic music. Mm, yeah. And, and I'd love to incorporate dance, but I, I'm not particularly good at that, but I'd love to see it <laughs> happening. You know, I think that's another another possibility for the future. Interesting. That, yeah. that, sound, that just sounds amazing. Um, very special. Um, as far as the uh, marriages go, very special to the bride and groom to have such a customized, personal, personalized experience. Yeah, that's not all words. That's yeah. the danger. You know, modern day celebrants, I don't want to be too critical of them, but the ones I have I've experienced, a lot of them are just words because they haven't learned about ritual or the power of it. Right. So it's all words. And, you know, people will forget words all the time, but they they would be much slower to forget an image or an experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I was kind of halfway there when I got married 25 years ago. Um, we got married in a garden and to prevent our, our wedding from sounding like a start of a joke, you know, a priest <laughs> by and um, a Buddhist monk walk into a wedding. <laughs> so to prevent that, we got married by um, an ecumenical minister and it was like a menu. It's like, okay, he heard some different choices, you know, pick one from column A, two column from column B and whatever. Right. So we were able to pick, like we had him say a um, Apache Indian prayer. Um, at the end, and no, so it was somewhat customized. It wasn't in a church where we must say these things, we must bow exactly. at this time, we must do this or that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you're saying um, sounds fantastic. You know, I, yeah. we were hoping to go to Ireland this year for our 25th wedding anniversary, but um, it didn't work out. 
maybe we'll come next year and uh, come over Good. to the Aran Islands and have you. Uh, do. We'll do a yeah. renewal. That would be renewal. such fun. Yeah. 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 That would be great. Yeah. I have a special place here where I perform some of these ceremonies and it means we can have it outdoors for a start, but it also means we can use what's on the landscape in this special place. So we have a holy well, so we can use that. We can use a sacred hawthorn tree, which is marking the site of the holy well. And the tradition there is to tie a ribbon on the tree. So you can mark your 25th wedding anniversary by tying a ribbon together on the tree. We have a standing stone, which I use to symbolize the male. And the man goes forward and puts his hands on the stone to get blessed by the sacred masculine. So that's another way to do it apart from the oak tree. Um, we have a sacred altar, which is uh, nearly one and a half thousand years old. So that's where they renew their vows or make their vows. We have a contract stone, which is a stone with a hole in it. And traditionally, that's used when people didn't have lawyers and solicitors to sign legal documents for marriages. They would do it there at the contract stone. They'd stand either side and put the first finger of the right hand into the hole. And when the two fingers touched in the middle, you'd sealed your vows. It's very symbolic. Yeah. All these elements are actually in the landscape. Um, and we can bring ceremony, which makes it very special. Wow, this sounds fantastic. Yeah, it is. It is. So if anybody uh, watching or listening uh, wants to have a, a great ceremony, uh, I guess he head over to the Iron Islands. What is exactly. it? Exactly. Inishmore? Inishmore is where I live. Yeah. The, the, Inishmore. The and uh, islands, you, yeah. you can uh, meet up with uh, Dara and have, have a great ceremony. Yeah, um, indeed. So I figure probably wrap things up now. Um as it's getting a little bit uh, close to, uh, I guess, what, four o'clock your time? Yeah, it's yeah. 25 to four. Yeah. It throws me off when one place is on daylight savings and other places. <laughs> <in the end. laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's quite confusing. So I'll give you an opportunity if there's anything, you know, you want to plug or anything you want to promote or anything. Um, well, you've mentioned my website and uh, my books. And um, what I'd also mention is that. Uh, my wife and I have a, a newsletter, which we produce eight times a year on the, the equinoxes, the solstices mm -hmm. and yeah. the four, four Celtic festivals. So that contains what we call food for the soul. Uh, it's not very long, but it's a nice little bite of nourishment, which comes out every six to eight weeks. And uh, you just subscribe to that through my website or through mm -hmm. our we have a publishing website called Ashling Publications, but either my, my name, daramalloy.com, you can get it that way. Okay, if anybody great. wants to sign up for it, yeah. That's okay. called Ash the Ashling Newsletter, we call it. Ashling means a vision or a dream, by the way, yeah. yeah, Fantastic, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just learning about the uh, those eight holidays, the will of the year myself, like trying yeah. to experience them. Um, well, I want to thank you, Dara, for your time and for the great conversation. Um, I hope my listeners and viewers got as much out of it as I did, but I found the conversation fascinating and you're welcome back anytime. Thanks very much, Mike. I enjoyed chatting to you and wish you the best with your podcast for the future. Great, great. Well, thank you very much again. And so great. Okay, thank Mike. You and we'll, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again Hopefully soon. Hopefully meet in person sometime. I'm I'm sold now. As soon as my wife gets home from work today, I'm gonna say, "Hey, if we go to Ireland next year, what do you think about uh, renewing our exactly. vows with with uh, exactly. <laughs> on, on the Iron Islands with Dara?" Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think she'll go fun. for it. She probably will. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Okay, Mike. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Take care.